0: important thing that I learned in seminary. Seminary is the one of the longest master's degree you can possibly get. It's like three masters. It's over 90 credit hours. And that's what pastors generally uh, have, a master's of divinity. One of the classes that I had in seminary uh, had to do with how to study the Bible, how to interpret what the Bible says. And one thing that we were just drilled with, like, you must understand this and share this with your church, is that there is only one interpretation of every Bible passage. Now, there may be many applications in your life, but there is really only one interpretation. The author meant to say one thing. Think about it. When you send a a letter, a text, an email to someone, do you mean several things, or do you mean what you mean to say And if they were to interpret it differently, that would be frustrating. For example, if I said in a text, life is heavy right now, I just need to chill. Most of us would understand what I'm saying. But if you text me back with a link to Weight Watchers (laughs) and where to buy ice, I would think you didn't really understand what I meant to say. As funny as that is that's oftentimes what happens when people interpret the Bible incorrectly there are some challenges in interpreting the Bible studying the Bible let's face it it was written the New Testament 2,000 years ago basically there's a cultural difference and there is also a language barrier that we have to overcome the New Testament was translated in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. So there's a challenge, and it's important that as a church body that we keep each other on track if someone interprets a passage incorrectly. For example, last week, it was deep. There was a lot that I preached on last week. You can always watch the messages on Facebook or on our website or YouTube. But at the very end, the very last verse, appeared to be attached to the previous verses, and I just briefly said something about it. And I will tell you that I'm not like, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days, who could not admit that he was wrong, couldn't even say the words. But there are times when, even though what what I said about it was correct, the interpretation was wrong, Here's the verse so you understand what I'm talking about, and I, I just thank uh, this church that we have because afterwards, Scott is one of our Bible study teachers here, sent me a text, not ripping me a new one, just saying, hey, this is the interpretation that I understand, look into it. And so I did the correct interpretation of this particular verse. Now, what, what is this verse that I'm referring to? Matthew 16, 28. I think I have it on the screen for you. So if you have a screen near you, which we have enough of them here, I'm sure you do, uh, the Bible verses will be up here. So in Matthew 16, 28, this is what Jesus says, and you'll see why it's a problem where it's located in a minute. But it says, Truly I say to you, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, flat-out wrong interpretation is, is that there would be some people that lived during the time of Jesus that never died. They're still alive today. They're hiding in some cave. I don't know. All right. But they're just waiting until Jesus to come back. And then, no, that's the wrong interpretation. I think we all could probably agree that it's silly. But I'm sure there's some out there that think that's the case. Um, But the other one is that, as I said last week, that that when Jesus, what he was saying is that when he comes back, the end times will happen so quickly that uh, you know, it will happen in a person's lifetime. That's not untrue, but that's not the interpretation. The correct interpretation actually leads us into today's message. The correct interpretation leads us into today's message. When Jesus said, you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, he was specifically referring to Peter, James, James and John, three of his closest disciples that would actually see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. They would see Jesus in all his glory in just about eight days later after he said this. Now you know in the Bible there are chapters and verses. But what you should know is is that when the authors wrote those books of the Bible, they didn't write with chapters and verses. We put those in later on to help us remember and help us understand. And So what's unfortunate here is, is that Matthew sixteen twenty eight, the verse 28 comes at the end of the previous passage, but it really belongs with the next passage. The same thing happens in Luke. It's only in Mark that they actually got it right when they divided it up, because it's in Mark 9, 1. It's at the beginning of the passage. To see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, Jesus was referring to what we call the transfiguration. Jesus in all his glory. When Jesus walked on this earth, his glory was veiled by a human body. It was somewhat covered up visibly. But today, we're going to see that one time when he basically revealed his glory, when God pulled back or or lifted the veil, if you will, And we saw Jesus, or they saw Jesus, as the Son of God. Isn't that exciting? I'm excited. Are you excited for that? All right, let's pray then. God, thank you for this day to worship you and to get into your word and to rightly handle it and interpret it the way it's meant to be interpreted. And may we apply it to our lives in the many ways that we can. Father, most of all, as I think about the end of this message, how we should be pursuing those mountaintop experiences where we get closer to you, where we worship you, where we feel the presence of your Holy Spirit as we did this morning when we sang those songs today. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. In Jesus' name, I pray. And the whole church said nice and loud? Amen. Love it. All right, the transfiguration. Here we go. And you can kind of see I've picked out this visual because it's as if kind of... And this mountain far away, you see this sort of bright light, and uh, that's what we're going to see here in just a moment. Now, Luke 9, verse 28, Luke 9, verse 28, so kind of in the middle of chapter 9 is Luke's transfiguration story account of what happened. And Luke actually says that it was eight days, eight days after. Now, when you read Matthew and Mark, you'll find out that they say, it's after six days that this occurred. So you ask yourself the question, of course, if you're a skeptic, you say, ha, see? But six or eight days, you don't even have to average it to seven, okay? It doesn't matter because it's a little detail, right, that in this particular case actually shows that the four Gospels the authors didn't collaborate together to make up this story like my brother and I did when we ate the cookies and blamed it on my little sister. That's collaboration of a false story. It's corroboration. It's authentication. It's validating that it actually happened. These little tiny nuances that are different just show and prove that it really did happen. And it's Interesting here that um, there's a difference in the how many days, and I'll tell you who I think is right, but I'm bringing all three of the stories together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all all three accounts of this particular story, so that you can um, see them together, harmonizing the Gospels. That's what I've been doing for the whole year, giving you the harmony of the Gospels. And Matthew, you, just so you know, in case you didn't, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve, so he would get his information firsthand, right? He got to spend time with Jesus three and a half years, so he's writing from that perspective. Mark was a disciple later on and spent a lot of time with who? Peter, right? He, he got his information from Peter, and it was Luke who got his information from, I heard it over here, Paul, right? Now, Luke was the historian, the doctor, I liken him to Lee Strobel, the investigative reporter that was an atheist, and then investigated the accounts of Jesus, the case for Christ was his bestseller, and he became a Christian because when he investigated the, the facts, that he came to that conclusion that Jesus truly was resurrected. So, read that book, Case for Christ. Luke was probably correct, I would think, it was eight days, because he was more of the really, let's get all the details exactly correct kind of guy, all right? Not a critical fact, but we move on. The purpose of going up the mountain, it says, okay, he took with him Peter, James, and John, they went up this mountain to pray. Now, is that the only reason Jesus would go up the mountain to pray? You see that in the Gospels. He would often go up the mountain to pray. The answer is, I don't think so. I think not only did he want to go up to pray, to be alone, I think he wanted a little break from the weather. We often don't grasp that, that the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. It's tropical. It's hot. So most of his time was spent in a hot, tropical area. To go up the mountain was to go get some fresh, cool air. And all Michiganders love the fall. Am I right? You love the fresh cool air. You're done with the hot humid summer. You want the fresh You love fall. It's just the part that comes after that we all hate and go south for, right? So Jesus goes up this mountain to get some fresh air and pray, not alone this time. He goes with his four or his three disciples. And he has four significant things the four of these guys go up, and there's four significant things that happen on this mountain that I want you to see this morning. Four important things. The first is the transfiguration of Jesus. The actual transfiguration. Verse 29 of Luke. If you follow along in your own Bible, it'd be, you can um, see Luke 9:29. That's where we're at. By the way, if you need a Bible for yourself, we have free Bibles donated um, by someone that would like to remain anonymous, but they are there for you. So grab a Bible... Over back by the TV if you need a Bible. Verse 29, Jesus was praying. His disciples were probably there praying with them. How many of you have been kind of in a group, a small group where everybody's kind of bowing their heads and they're praying, right? Or maybe some people, maybe they were praying like this. But something happened and the disciples would have noticed it. It says his face was altered. The appearance of his face was altered. That's how Luke writes it. And his clothes became dazzling white. Mark writes that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Just this morning, my wife, Jamie, said, I have tried to get Ethan's white baseball pants clean, I have tried everything, and I cannot do it. Not even with bleach can you get those grass-stained, muddy pants clean. Jesus' clothes were dazzling white. Personally, I think this should be a paint color at Sherwin-Williams. Dazzling white. Or maybe we could call it Jesus white. Wow, that's a really nice white color on your wall. What color is that? Jesus white. Wow, it's dazzling. I know. Jesus, white. I like how Luke says that the appearance of his face was altered. Jesus' face was altered in such a way that he didn't look the same, or he radiated, if you will. I don't know about you, but when I first saw the very first Mission Impossible movie, And there was that scene where Ethan Hunt, the main character, Tom Cruise, if you will, he was pretending to be somebody else. He was disguised, and it wasn't that normal disguise we see in the movies, you know, with a mustache or a beard or glasses. No, he had on that that human mask and that voice changer, and then he pulled it off, and you were just like, what just happened? Like, you've never seen anything like that before. Anybody else just totally blown away by that? It's become a constant, you know, in their movies. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't do that. Okay? But something changed. Something altered. He was this bright, dazzling white. His face was altered. Matthew says, it shone like the sun. And in fact, Matthew 17:2 it says... He was transfigured before them. Now, I often will mention that certain keywords in the Bible passage, I'll often refer to their Greek word. I'll go back to the Greek. And most of the time, it's a word you don't really understand, never heard it before. But this is a time where you actually know the Greek word. Isn't that exciting? You know this Greek word. You've heard it before. The Greek word for transfigure is metamorpho, as in metamorphosis as in a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, changing form. And all the fifth grade science teachers went, yes. That's my wife over there. Jesus went from human to God, and all three disciples saw this glory. They saw his glory. They saw the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. You see the fulfillment of that verse? They saw it, the transfiguration. The second significant thing that happened on the mountain is the two witnesses. Let's go to Luke nine thirty and 31. There were two witnesses with Jesus, two men, talking with him. The men were Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory. They spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now, when you read the Bible, I want to encourage you not to always just read it through. I want to encourage you to stop, pause, meditate, chew on, really think about some verses. If a verse sort of stands out to you when you're reading the Bible, if if it's as if someone turned up the, 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 the noise, you know, turned up the volume to you, that's the Holy Spirit telling you to stop and listen. Think about it just just pause on that verse for a little bit. If we pause on these two verses here and we think about them a little bit, we will see that there are some really fascinating things to ponder. First of all, the fact that the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. Why would they recognize them? These guys have been long gone. They wouldn't know. There were no pictures back then. Okay? The disciples didn't have their smartphones. They didn't walk around the Sea of Galilee looking for a signal. okay? They didn't have any of that. How would they recognize these two guys? It doesn't say that they asked Jesus either. It's as if they just knew this was Moses and this was Elijah. You may think about heaven. You may wonder, what will I look like in heaven? Will people recognize me? Will I recognize people? How old will I be? All those questions we have about heaven... And it appears that we see here that we will just recognize people in heaven. It won't really matter how, how old they look. or how. I went to my 30-year high school class reunion this summer. The whole time I'm saying to my friend, who's that again? I don't recognize him. <laughs> really, that's him? Doesn't look like him anymore. But in heaven, that won't be an issue. You'll just recognize They recognize Moses and Elijah. Secondly, Moses and Elijah are in their glory. Their glory. Now you might recall in Genesis that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they didn't wear clothes. They were naked and they were not ashamed of it. But then they sinned, they disobeyed God, and they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed and put clothes on. So, What we can see here is that it's possible in the Garden of Eden, before they sinned, they were actually clothed in glory. They radiated, like Jesus here. Think about it. They walked with God in the cool of the day, every day. And when you're in the presence of God, you reflect His glory. When Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face looked like a light bulb. He had to put a veil over it because the people couldn't see. They couldn't even look at him. Like, Moses, jeez, put that thing, over, veil yourself. You're too bright. Because he was in the presence of God. Someday in heaven, we'll be clothed in glory, just like these guys. By the way, if you ever want to compliment a woman, tell her she's glowing. She looks radiant. Jamie, you look radiant today. See that? They love it. <laughs> I'm dazzling, she said. But in heaven, it's legit. You're radiating in heaven. Thirdly, why is it Moses and Elijah? Why is it those two guys? Why not Abraham? He, you know, why not him? Why not Noah? Why not Jeremiah or Isaiah? I mean, these are all significant people that could have visited with Jesus on the mountain. Well, most scholars will just simply kind of settle in on the fact that, well, it's Moses because Moses was the law, right? The, the Jewish people refer to it as the law of Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, so he was used by God to bring the law. But then there's Elijah. Elijah's kind of known as the prophet, the, 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 he was the first prophet, if you will, and so there's that. I don't disagree with that at all. and that's, You could probably just stop there and say, that's why those two guys are with Jesus. But there's so much more about these two guys that you need to know. First of all, Moses died before he could enter the promised land. You might recall, he went up on the mountain, he saw the promised land, but he was not allowed to enter it because of a sin that he committed. And so he died. But... Interestingly, they did not recover his body. They did not bury him, I should say. And in fact, if you read Jude, the second-to-last book in the Bible, verse 9, you will see that the archangel Michael argued with the devil about the body of Moses. So apparently, even the devil didn't know where the body was. But here is Moses' body. Here on this mountain... Is Moses, and guess what? He's in the true promised land. The promised land is heaven. All the Old Testament points to the new, and the heaven is where it's at, and that's where Moses is. Secondly, Elijah is significant because Elijah didn't die, he was raptured, he was taken up into the clouds. And we are told in the New Testament that when you die, you go to be with the Lord immediately, like Moses. Or, if Jesus comes back first, you will be raptured if you're a true believer up in the air, just like Elijah. There's more. Go to Revelation 11, verse 3. In the end times, during the tribulation, verse 3, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Verse 6. These two witnesses have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. By the way, who prayed for it to not rain for three and a half years? Elijah. And who was it that turned the Nile River into blood? Moses. They had ministries on earth, and it appears they will have ministries in the end times. So much to think about with these two, Moses and Elijah. And I didn't even get to this amazing conversation they must have had about Jesus' departure, which is actually the word exodus from this earth. Thirdly, there are three tents. What is that all about? Let's look at Luke nine thirty-two. Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep. <laughs> those three disciples are always falling asleep, aren't they? <laughs> In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying, and they fell asleep. Well, they became awake, and they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with them. And as the men were parting from him, so it appears that the conversation was over, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Duh. (laughs) Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not really knowing what he was saying. And even Mark 9, it says that he didn't know what to say and they were terrified. Some people are speechless when they're scared. Some people can't shut up. I don't know which one you are, but Peter is the guy who can't stop talking. He, he just says whatever. And he says this. And some scholars would say that he suggests these three tents because it was the time the Jewish festival called the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles. In Hebrew, the word is Sukkot. S-U-K-K-O-T. If you're a fan of psych, Burton Guster would pronounce it suck it. All right? That would be that pronunciation. Any fans of psych out there? Okay, a couple. Good. Sukkot lasted seven days. Jewish people would sleep in tents, these little booths, for seven days to remember their 40 years wandering in the desert. Other scholars suggest Peter just wanted to stay on the mountaintop. Right? He saw the meeting breaking up, and he's like, wait wait, wait a minute. I got an idea come back, let's set up some tents for you guys. I mean, have you ever been on an amazing Christian retreat? I mean, you were just on a spiritual high and you didn't want to come back. Okay, if that's never happened to you, have you ever been on vacation and never wanted to come back? Or have you ever been on summer vacation and never wanted to go back to school? Anybody relate to that? I think I got everybody covered. Peter probably figured these three tents would be good. Let's keep these guys up here. Let's have a campfire, eat some s'mores. I'll be honest, when I get to heaven, I'd like to sit around the campfire and talk with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That's going to be a pretty neat experience. But Peter's idea is quickly silenced because here comes number four, the Shekinah glory. Now, if you've never heard that term before, the Shekinah glory... Don't worry, it's not in the Bible. It's actually what Jewish rabbis called the pillar of cloud that shows up in the Old Testament, and now we see it here in the New Testament. Luke 9, 34 and 35. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is God. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I know Anthony. Anthony Nichols does a great guy. He was in our play last Christmas. But a cloud enveloped them, and God spoke from the cloud. Second time in the New Testament he speaks. In Exodus 33, let me take it back to the Old Testament. Exodus 33, Moses would enter the tent. And the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the A pillar. Think of a pillar. A pillar is like a, you know, a post that's holding up the temple. But it was a pillar of a cloud. So you've got this cloud that's sort of in the form of a pillar, and it's right out front, right out at the entrance of this tent of meeting, and the Lord would speak to Moses and the people. This is what I love about this. It wasn't just Moses involved in God meeting with the people. It says in verse 10 the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and they would rise up and worship at their own tent doors. And this is how the Lord would speak to Moses like it was face to face, like me speaking to you. There was another time when Solomon finished the temple. No longer were they worshiping in a tabernacle, but now it was a temple. First Kings 8, verse 10 and 11, The priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's the Shekinah glory that we're talking about that appears here, when God speaks to Peter, James, and John. Now, I think, really, God is speaking specifically to what Peter said and his suggestion. Let's build three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, God spoke at Jesus' first time at his baptism. He said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. And here again, he speaks and says the same thing. The third time will come just before he goes to the cross to glorify him. But I believe God speaks here to make a point to Peter, and that is you do not put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He does not dwell in a mansion in heaven like Moses and Elijah and all of us who are promised the mansion in heaven in John 14. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the center of worship. It's not Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's Jesus. Way up here. And in response to hearing God's voice, the disciples heard this Matthew 17. They fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise up, have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes, and nobody was there but Jesus. What an experience They could never forget. In fact, when you read John and you start in chapter 1, verse 14, you realize that John clearly remembered this. He says, the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, human. He dwelt among us. And then he says, we've seen his glory. And that was the mountaintop experience. We've seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter also wrote of this in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. He says, we don't follow cleverly devised myths when, myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses to His majesty. To His majesty. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with Whom I am well pleased. You know, for the rest of Peter's life, he heard that voice in his head. He heard that. The very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Now, I'm a personal fan of mountaintop experiences. Aren't you? They are wonderful. A time when it seems like nothing else matters, you just are so close to God. And you just worship Him. Those are wonderful experiences. If you've had those before, you know what I'm talking about, and you want more. And, and sometimes all it takes is come to church on Sunday, and you can experience it. Other times, though, you may have to go up a mountain. Go get quiet somewhere with God. Go for a drive. whatever. Go on a retreat. Whatever it takes, I want to encourage you, make it happen. Get up the mountain. Life's always going to be busy, isn't it? There's always going to be something to do. There's always going to be one more thing on the to-do list. Don't let those things stop you from going up the mountain and being with God and seeing his glory and experiencing his glory. Just make it happen because as we sang our first song, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is some freedom. And I don't want you just to do it for yourself. I want you to go up the mountaintop. I want you to experience God regularly. But I don't want you to just do it for yourself. I want you to come back down that mountain. And don't you dare put on a veil like Moses did. And those are instructions from the Apostle Paul. I invite our team to come up and sing our final song. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you will see this whole passage, but I'm just going to give you verse 18. Paul says to the church in Corinth, and I'm telling this church today, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. People you know need to see God's glory. People that you know need to see God's glory. And they will see it in you if you reflect His glory, if you radiate His glory, if you are in constant, regularly going up the mountain and experiencing it. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And don't you want to see your friends be free of guilt? Don't you want to see your neighbors free of shame? Don't you want to see your family free of sin? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you need to shine your light and let the whole world see. Shine your light and let the whole world see.